Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with a special guest, Dr. Chap Clark, who has been working with students for years. Now he's a senior pastor, written a number of books, and I got a chance to read his book, Adoptive Church, and have been looking forward to have him on for a long time, just talking about what would it mean to have a church that engages this emerging generation, but even just ask him some questions about what is going on with students and with this new generation today. So, Dr. Clark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. To be with you two, what a gift. Uh, and I don't get called Dr. Clark all that often unless they want to, if they want a grade change, maybe that's when they pull out the title. But uh, I appreciate being with you guys. Thank you. Well, let me start off by, by asking you this. In your book, Adoptive Church, you say it's focused on reaching emerging generations. You've worked with right. students for a long time. What would you say are some distinctives or characteristics that describe what people have dubbed iGen or Gen Z? Um, I, I kind of have a, a theory that emerged over many years. Uh, you, you know, you and your dad, especially, and a lot of folks helped me to think uh, more deeply about the life that young people were growing up in and our culture. And I know you guys have done a lot of work with apologetics and that side of it. I've looked more at the kind of sociology and the psychology of kids as they've grown up. And through the decades, uh, kind of my understanding of how life has worked for them is adults have been less and less present over mm. the years. And therefore, they've had fewer and fewer um, actual models who have shared life with them, people to sit on the curb with them after a game. Uh, parents that will sit down and just engage young people in a way that's trusting and allows them to open up. So therefore they've been more and more on their own. And I see that I'm old enough to remember when Gen X was the great enemies. And, you know, now they're the middle age folks all complaining about their kids. Uh, so <laughs> the Gen Xers were these awful generation of these rebels, but therefore their problem was they just didn't have adults that, that seemed to care enough to slow down their own agenda to actually listen to the younger generation. Well, you know, as Gen X has come through and now millennials are coming through and, and the following generations, I, I kind of don't see these as waves of unique uh, populations. I see these as products of previous generations where what they receive from the people that are ahead of them, whether they're 10 years ahead of them, like teachers or parents or grandparents, less and less actual engagement and support. And therefore, every generation feels a little more lonely, a little more distressed, mm. a little more incomplete. Uh, and and therefore, they, they look like they're entitled and they look like they're self-centered and we go after them with selfies and all kinds of things. But what they really want is somebody to come alongside of them. And to actually take them seriously while they help protect them and interpret their pain. So my take is this generation of, I mean, all the way from children all the way through, I would say, uh, late 20s, early 30s, it's a whole huge vast population of people that has had very few mature, godly adults 
who don't have a hardcore agenda to to judge young people, but are willing to care, surround, empower. And uh, and I think it's really taken a toll on them. So I, I see today's 15-year-old as in great pain, um, but trying to figure out how to survive in a culture that just goes so fast and so filled with superficiality. So I could talk more and more on that, but that's plenty. But- Doctor Doctor Clark, I'll get in. I'll get into the respect thing too, and call oh. you doctor. Oh my uh, god! Okay, I'm going to soak it in. But I, but I think this, that may be the last time for both of us. So uh, <laughs> here, let me. It's totally okay. <laughs> let me follow up on that just briefly. What do you think accounts for this sort of absence of adults in the lives of this emerging generation? Um, but why 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 are so why are adults so non present? With uh, kids my, today. My take, is, and it's more complicated than we have time for here, but my take is in the court when I was a, when I was a, I was a Fuller professor for 21 years, and uh, and kind of like you guys, I, I did a lot on youth, family, and culture, and media, and film, and development, and a lot of these kind of things. Um, and through those years, I, I came to the conclusion that as modern society really became more complicated. And as uh, kind of a lack of a meta narrative, which I know you guys talk about some, uh, more and more people became isolated and fragmented into smaller and smaller groups. Uh, there's a guy named Robert Putnam. He's a sociologist at Harvard. I think he's a closet Christian. I don't know. But he has done some really interesting work on how what we think community is, as he wrote it so um, significantly in the last 40 or 50 years, and he documents it so well. And there's a lot of other corroborating evidence on that. That people have become more and more isolated, and then when you grow up, when you've been isolated, you have this inner need to make your mark. Tom, you've heard me say from the pulpit before, when you used to be at St. Andrews, uh, that we have to, we, we've got to perform our way into blessing. We've got to create some reason why somebody would take us seriously. And and I don't think 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the average person would grow up believing that nobody cared unless I proved myself. Mm. And I think that's, that's the biggest issue. That's Competition in comparison is really the name of the game. So when the name of the game is competition and comparison, internally, you really feel on your own. And when you feel on your own, you're going to do a lot of crazy, goofy things. And it's affecting marriages, it's affecting friendships. Very few people know how to really engage with each other at deep levels. Chap, let me ask you this question. You, uh, Thank you, John. Where to go? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something. You've been in youth ministry for a while, and I was tempted to call you kind of a youth ministry father with all the genuine respect that comes from that because of I'm your experience. I usually call it grandfather, which is even worse. <laughs> well, I think my grand, my dad gets that grandfather motif. Yeah, there you ground. go. <laughs> so whatever motif you want, you have a unique perspective of seeing youth ministry change over really, you know, two, three decades or so. How yeah. have you seen it change? You talk about it moving from being programmatic to more adoptive. Can you give us a 30,000 foot view of how you've seen youth ministry change and some things you think are good and maybe some things you're concerned about? That's a great question. Thanks. Let me be as uncharacteristic of me. Let me try to be brief. Um, uh, Youth ministry really, as it, as we see it now, 
really began to take shape in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, in those days, it was a whole bunch of people that said, doggone it, we're losing kids. Kids don't like church. Uh, we care about them. Nobody else seems to. So we're just going to grab a few, few of each other. We're going to love kids in the name of Jesus. And we're going to help them to fall in love with Christ. And developmentally, in the late 60s and 70s, you were really an adult developmentally right around the time you graduated from high school or shortly thereafter. So you were ready to take on the demands and call of the gospel at that time. And so the working with high school kids, which was the primary mode of youth ministry in those days, was was to convince them that Jesus is real and they could, in an adult-like way as a junior or senior in high school, could say, I'm going to give my life to him. The Jesus movement of the early 70s, uh, the proliferation of the early Christian music, you know, all the Southern California stuff that happened with Chuck Smith, that's helped spawn and the new specialties and others help spawn this kind of commitment to Jesus and kids. Uh, working with Youth for Christ and Young Life and the kind of the integration of all of us getting on board, yay, focus ministry. But then as, as the 70s took off in the 80s and more and more of the things I was talking about earlier, more and more adults moved into programatizing and codifying how we do ministry. And we started spreading that out across the church. In the early 70s, it was just youth ministry and then normal church life as a community. Then in the early 80s, children's ministry became a big deal. Then in the late 80s, uh, women's ministry, promise keepers, uh, worship ministry through the mid-80s, late-80s, 90s, and all these different aspects of church ministry became kind of bifurcated and fragmented, and every little pocket had their own programmatic deal. So youth ministry became about, we're the big dog, we're the ones that bring in kids. We know how to do it, quote. Sun City, the, the beginning of uh, Willow Creek, was this, Adam Moody and some other folks, hmm. was a big deal to programatize and codify. This is how you do youth ministry. And then Fields and Jim Burns through Saddleback. And I mean, we can go through a whole lot of different litanies of these things. But basically, youth ministry in the mid-80s became about running programs to love kids in the name of Christ. It used to be entrepreneurs out there in the streets, going to games, hanging out with kids. Then it became, we're going to build it and they're going to come. And we built programs and we programatized youth ministries. Then in the early 90s, Mike Iaconelli and, a, and four couples went to spend a week with Henry Nowen. And Dee and I were one of those couples. Wow. And and I've been preaching on that actually the last six weeks on, on now and then life of the beloved, but that changed you, especially, I don't know if you remember that, Sean, but all of a sudden we started thinking, wait a minute, let's get back to what does it really mean to lead kids to love Jesus instead of loving youth ministry. We don't want them to love youth ministry. Now let's let them love Jesus. And let's think about spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines and then youth ministry took off in the 90s and early 2000s in the academy. Viola, Talbot, Fuller, Moody, Dallas. I mean, you just go down the list. And all of a sudden we started doing training people to think theologically about youth ministry. And we became more thoughtful. So we became more spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. We became more theological. And programs became more uh, 
more an expression of theology and spiritual formation until about 10 years ago. And about 10 years ago, for a lot of reasons, we started going back to saying, that's too much work. Doggone it. We got a 23-year-old with a guitar. Come on, and a video machine and a great computer. And we went back to programatizing youth ministry, and that's where we are again. I think we're back in the mid-80s where mm. we, we run programs. We play cool worship music. We give a talk. We try to get kids to be student leaders, but we don't give them our lives anymore. Mm. And and therefore, kids are disconnected from the church in unprecedented numbers, which is why we're losing so many. I know that's so long. I'm sorry, but that's a very complicated question. I feel like we've, we're missing spiritual formation. We're missing a core theology of what we're doing. And that's what I've been fighting for in the last five years. And that's why Adoptive Church is kind of my, my pinnacle book of my youth ministry career. Chap, that's, a, that's really insightful stuff. I appreciate that big picture overview of that. Because uh, I, you know, I grew, grew up and came to faith in the '60s and '70s through Young Life, where people just hung out with us. You know, they did exactly what you described. They went to games, they hung out with us, and by their presence, they showed that they actually cared about us and thought we had something to offer. Um, and that, that I think tracing that change, I think is is really that's really an insightful set of comments. Uh, Tell, tell us what you mean. Let's let's get into your idea of more of the adoptive church a little more specifically. What exactly do you mean by that concept? And how is how is the, how how would we notice an adoptive church if we actually saw one? Um, the word comes from the Bible, which anybody that knows me well knows that I am a Bible thumper, even though I taught at Fuller. <laughs> uh, thank you for laughing. That's so awesome. Uh, I love people that are that would label themselves as conservative and me as sort of not because I taught at Fuller. And I just go, okay, grab your Bible. Here we go, baby. That's Let's have it. some fun of the scriptures. And, uh, and I, and I got to tell you, I used to teach assimilation um, for years. In 2000, there's a book called um, Starting Right, A Practical Theology of Youth Ministry, something like that, with Kenda Dean and Dave Ron. And in that book, I wrote about that our job is to assimilate kids into the church. Don't just get them to love Christ, but get them to find and express love for Christ in the body of Christ. And uh, that sounded good. And, you know, anybody that's kind of a thoughtful youth ministry person said, sure, they need the church. Uh, the problem is I, I had an African-American doctoral student once who really challenged me on that and, and said, that's a horrible word. Because what assimilate means is you get to be with us, kids. You get to be with the big church people, but you got to become us in order to join us. That's what assimilate means, to assimilate from a fringe culture into a dominant culture. The fringe culture has to adapt to the power of the dominant culture, meaning if a kid's going to end up in the church to assimilate, they got to... They got to like the sermons. They got to like the music. They got to dress the right way. They got to become their parents. Well, the problem with that is it's it's horribly offensive to the fringe group if they have any sense of self. And it took an African-American doctoral student to help me to understand that one. And so I was with this doctoral cohort where we started going, okay, what's a better word? And we ended up going to the scriptures that, when the church was in greatest conflict, 
the Apostle Paul appeals to who we are in Christ by saying, don't you realize, five times he uses a single Greek word, which is translated adopted to sonship. Three times in Romans, once in Galatians, once in Ephesians, and he said, don't you realize that you are adopted by Christ? John 1.12, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Theologically, after the fall, we've all been orphaned in function. We're still imminent children because God still loves us and it stamps us with his image, but we're wandering lost. John, I mean, Luke 19, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. In Christ, we are found, and when we're found, we're called children of God. We live into that reality. That's plural. That means we are siblings in the body of Christ, and Paul uses the word adoption. So adoptive ministry, adoptive church means we live into the reality of our mutual adoption in Christ. That's the bottom line. And I don't see any church, I haven't seen any church really fully, thoroughly living that way, in at least in our context. I see it in other parts of the world some, but not here. So what are the barriers keeping people from seeing the church this way? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it busyness? Is it priorities? So let me ask you that. What are the barriers? And then second, how do you motivate adults to buy into the model of seeing youth as part of the church when every other institution seems to be pushing this endless adolescence and don't grow up until you absolutely have to. So what are the barriers and what do we do to motivate people to see the importance of, of Okay, this? this is going to get me in trouble. That's okay. I'm used to that. Welcome to my career. We, we, can, um, edit, we can edit things out if we ah, need to. Yeah. yeah, well, unfortunately, I actually mean it. Two things. Um, pain which translates into arrogance is one of the barriers. The other barrier is um, power. Uh, I believe with all my heart that millennials are not the entitled generation. Senior adults and, and older adults who are in power are the entitled generation. Wow. Yeah, see why I get in trouble? Oh, I think you're right. It, Keep going, though. It doesn't play anything, but the point of the I think our holding on to power and dominance is the way we deal with our sense of loss and pain as the culture changes. I'm I'm pretty old now too. I'm a granddaddy of three granddaughters, uh, but I I got to tell you, it's just part of the deal as the culture changes. I feel like I'm losing my grip on what's important to me, hmm. and the one place I can exert power is in my church. I've been here for 40 years. It's my church. Now, pastors are the, are culpable for this because I think pastors have also bought into it uh, because we have not allowed ourselves to realize the church is never to be a fixed, dominant, institutionalized culture. The church is an open organism where the Holy Spirit is guiding us to constantly reinvent ourselves in a local context, meaning the older I get, the more responsibility I have to adapt so new people can join me. And that's my pain and my power are the two things that keep others from joining me in the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not young people's job is not to try to weasel their way into the dominance of a church. It's the older generation and those in power, the senior leadership, 
that must open up our hearts and our lives. So we receive young people, whether it's a 15-year-old or a 30-year-old, into the center of our fellowship. When it's about music, when it's about style, when it's about money, it is sin, bottom line. Hmm. And we are the body of Christ, and we must live as siblings where the Holy Spirit is moving us to love one another so we're capable of following him and participate in his kingdom. Again, that's really insightful stuff. And, uh, you know, for, for I think for someone at, at my age who is basically sort of where, where you are, um, you know, that th those are particularly convicting words to, to try and choke down. Um, See why I get in trouble? <laughs> no, but that's, But you know what? I got to tell you, me too. I'm, the, I'm chief of sinners. I mean, I'm the worst. But that, that I mean, I, I confess, that's really insightful stuff. And I, I mean, I admit it is hard to choke down, um, but that, that that doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, let me ask you something sort of related to that. In your book, you sure. discuss, you spend a lot of time talking about welcoming the outsider and hospitality. I've actually heard you preach quite a bit on on Christian hospitality. Um, we, you know, we talk about that a lot, but but incorporating that into the into the DNA of a, of a local church is a whole nother matter. Um, how, how do you, how do you see that as part of becoming an adoptive church and how, how does that become sort of part of the fabric of what a church is about? That's, that's really good. Um, and, and you know what, um, I've been a consultant and a writer and a teacher all these years. It is, it's a way different ball game to actually be the guy and how the Lord actually orchestrated this, we never even want. You know that, Tom. I, I, did. I didn't apply for that job. Senior pastor of a pretty big church, a pretty traditional church, um, with a lot of powerful people, to, to, to get them to honestly look at the scriptures and the gospel and their own propensities and biases is not an easy thing. But what's key is, I have to start with me and senior leadership, senior staff, senior lay leadership, and get them to recognize, get all of us to recognize, we have to change ourselves first. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, any dominant culture for it to change, it must be the leaders that humble themselves and change first. So that's where we've been, what I've been working on in my first year, I'm now into my second year. Second thing is then you create stories and narratives and a lexicon and language that reflects what the gospel actually teaches so that everybody gets infused and swims in this pond of one in Christ. We are a family. We are all siblings. All of us must open our hearts to first each other and then the world. And uh, it is slow going, man, especially in this culture. I, I've been around a long time. I have never seen the Christian communities divided as they are today hmm. in my lifetime that I've noticed. Um, th this is just like the civil rights movement. But I, w I mean, that we are, we're worrying about so many of the things that ultimately are killing us where we got to just kind of look at the Bible again. So, so my take is leaders have to be on board and have courage to lead. I think that's great. And I appreciate you not only saying that, but really doing that in a real world setting and just kind of owning your own journey. I think that's, I think that's great. I commend you for that. And I appreciate it. 
Let me ask you this question, chap. Just kind of push back a little bit and see what you think. I read on page 26, you mentioned three crises facing youth ministry today. Right. And you said one, losing kids. Everybody agrees with that. Statistics are clear. Kids are disengaging the church primarily and many their faith. And then second, you says this. Encro- you said this encroaching secularized worldview. And then third, kids are hurting. Now, when I look at that, I go, okay, this secular worldview is coming. And that's a belief, truth kind of realm, a kid's worldview. Kids are hurting is a relational realm. It's both. And I saw the same in your, your sticky faith book you did with Kara Powell. The top questions kids asked were like, does God love me? Relational. And then the other one was, does God even exist? Which is more of an apologetic question. Right. And my question for you, if I could frame it this way, sometimes I see my apologetic friends saying, all we got to do is teach truth to this generation. And I'm like, you're nuts. We have to teach them truth, but it must be in relationships. On the flip side, when I read your book, it's about adoption. It's about relationships. And I'm going, yes, yes, yes. But does an adoptive church also systematically and thoughtfully and carefully teach a young person how to think Christianly because can't Mormons do an adoptive church if all we're talking about is relationships? That's so good, John. That's a great question. You know, and you know, you guys have both done this. When you're right, you got to pick and choose how far you go into different concepts when you're Mm. trying to build an argument. And so, um, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, If we don't have the core gospel that's infusing our relationships with kids, we can model love, but if we don't model love that emanates from who Jesus Christ is and who he calls us to be, then that is really an empty kind of love and it's not the fullness of the gospel. And, and so like one of the chapters that has most guided me in discipleship is Galatians 5. Mm. And, and Galatians 5, 6 is this incredible phrase that was so offensive to the, the Jewish Christians at the time. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. We can talk about that all day, about empty devotional duties that we think are going to heal us, because devotional duties don't heal us. Spiritual disciplines don't heal us. Faith in Christ heals us. Disciplines get our hearts ready to receive his healing. So, But the second half of Galatians 6, 5 is the 5, 6 is your answer to your question. The only thing that counts, I love when Paul says that, because as soon as Paul says the only thing that counts, you go, oh, my gosh, he's about to say the only thing that counts. I mean, that's like, Mm. wow. Okay, is faith expressing itself through love, pistuo? Um, That uh, that word faith, he's already unpacked in that chapter where it means my 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 entire life is centered on the person and work revelation, lordship, a reign of Jesus Christ. So the only thing that counts is my faith, my trust in Christ, expressing itself through love. So loving relationships are the environmental laboratory where kids explore the truth of Christ. And And the truth of Christ is embedded within the relationships. The one place that I'm I never got to be invited to any in any conversations with apologetics friends like you guys, Sam, mm. um, because they've always seen me as 
way too young lifey, way too relationships and just good old Jesus instead of worldview stuff. <laughs> but I, I come from a place, even my doctorate had a lot to do with human development, where it's really tough as, as the brain develops to present any kind of cognitive content disassociated from the reality of where that content is already taken root. In other mm. words, content of worldview training of ideas is crucial and important, but it's got to be embedded within where people are actually living it and expressing it while they teach it. Mm. And my take on the church is we're way better at offering cognitive content to kids than we are letting them actually see how that content has transformed us. Mm. So therefore, an adoptive church is where we are really committed to making a safe space for kids while we're at the same time living out authentic biblical worldview faith. Um, so that's, I mean, it's really fun to have a topic on that in a panel, but that's all I can say about that. Chap, I think that's fantastic. In fact, interestingly enough, my father's written a lot of books on relationships and purity and parenting and also in the world of apologetics. Well, I, and I've grown up on that. I mean, your dad was is older than me. And yes, I've learned so much from him and you. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in both of those arenas, your dad's been a key player in my thinking. Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And one of the things he's always said to me is like, truth is meant for relationships. And we learn truth best in relationships. And that's what I hear you saying, which I think yep. is just a beautiful balance. Both sides of the conversation need to hear and remember. So thanks for thanks for bringing that out. And your book does bring out that balance, I think. So thanks for clarifying. I think that's awesome. Thanks. We want to thank you for taking the time uh, to come on. And personally, just, you know, the older I get, I have kids. I don't have grandkids yet, but I'm going to look at people like my dad you, yes, he's older than you, and you've had a consistent message. You've had a consistent ministry. You stayed faithful, especially to a generation that really judges our words by whether we're authentic or not. I just want to say thanks for living such a consistent life with this message. That means a ton today. And I want to encourage our listeners. Uh, your book, Adoptive Church, is written for church workers. So if you work in a church in any setting, even if you volunteer, or if you're a pastor or youth pastor, pick it up. If you're a parent and you're listening, this would be a wonderful gift for your youth pastor in particular, and not with any hidden agenda. Just say, hey, I heard this podcast. Chap Clark has been in ministry for 30 some years. Here's kind of his life message, and they need to wrestle through that on a staff. So thanks for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Sean. Both you guys, I appreciate you both so much. And what a joy to uh, walk with you on this journey. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Chap Clark, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.